Welcome to The Word at First Pres, the official podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the fall, we're going to be working through a series called God in Science. Each week, we're going to be exploring the various ways that God has revealed to us through the study and field of science. So how's everybody doing this morning? We're doing okay? We awake? All right. So for our scripture today, we're doing Genesis 1, 1 to 27. And doing this scripture, we could just read it. Or I figured it would be better if I could show it to you, represent it to you, what it might have looked like from their point of view. And so what we're going to do is we're going to watch a video of this scripture with backgrounds on it. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, it's a little cheesy. I took the, uh, the actual audio from one of these Bible audio books, and so anyways, we didn't have time to re-record it, so it's, it's like, it's funny. Basically, I'm just going to say that straight out, like when you listen to it, it's funny. So anyways, I want you to watch it, and, uh, and then we're going to get into what we're talking about for the day. So Genesis 1, 1 to 27. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. 
And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. All right. So, it's good to be back. Been gone for a while. Did you all miss me? Nah, yeah. <laughs> I know she did. <laughs> so... I've been gone. I realized that when we clicked over into September, that that marked my three-year anniversary of being at this church. And I know for some of you, we've been slogging through it for three long years. But I'm really happy to be here. And I've been reflecting on kind of the time that I've been here. And the word that kept coming to mind for me is the word transition. I think we've been through a lot of transitions in this church. Would you agree with me that we've been through quite a few transitions? So we've been through staff transitions. We've been through member transitions with deaths, and we've been through building transitions. I mean, this is new stuff, right, now that we can do all this. Not everybody was super happy about it initially, but they've worked out okay, getting those monitors up there. And I can tell you that what I've really appreciated about this congregation is how well you all have taken all of those transitions that we've been through over the last three years. I mean, I know that it can be hard to deal with me. My wife has trouble with me most of the time, so I can only imagine what it's like for you all to have to deal with me each week. And you all have dealt with a lot. You know, the fact is we've had a lot of new things. There's a whole new vision out there, and we have a new Stephen Ministry program. We have small groups. The mission is up and running, which, by the way, is going great. Thank you to all of you who are participating in that. It's going very, very well. And, you know, this past week, I was at a place called Credo. It's a Credo conference you get to do this once in your career as they give you the opportunity to do it. And I have to tell you that I was with a bunch of other pastors, and what I noticed very quickly is that I'm really fortunate to be here. I can tell you that much. Because you all are a congregation of doers. I mean, really. I mean, a lot of these pastors, they were members of 100, 200-member churches, and they're struggling just to keep going. And you all are here, and you don't just talk to talk. You walk the walk. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate that and how hard it makes me want to work to give you my best every single Sunday. So, 
We are three years in. We are moving into a new year. My year is September to September. So I want to talk about the new sermon series we're going to be doing for the year. In order to do that, I want to go back and I want to talk about kind of what we've done for the past three years. So do you remember what we did the first year I was here? Genesis, Genesis, right? What we just did. Always start there, right? Genesis, the reason why we did that is it lays the foundation for everything that you learn about God going into the future. And it it lays the foundation for what you learn about God in the Bible. The second year, what do we study? Mark. Mark. Nobody remembers that one. But everybody remembers Genesis. So we studied the Gospel of Mark. You know, Jesus, that guy. So we learned about him and him being the Messiah, what that means to us. Last year we did three sermon series all about spirituality, what it means to us internally, and how we bring that out into the world. And so... That follows a pattern of God, Jesus, Spirit, or Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know what I'm talking about, right? Trinity. Well, we're going to do that this year, except this year we're going to do three sermon series that each follow one of those points. So we're going to do God, we're going to do Jesus, we're going to do Spirit. And the first one, from now all the way through Christmas Eve, is about God. And it's called God in Science. Now each week you're going to see this little animation here up on the screen that's going to come up. And as you see, it's going to regress back into the actual title. And the one that remains lit every week with the symbol represents what we're talking about for that particular week. So each week we're going to come together and we're going to talk about how the field and study of science helps us to see God working in the world. And I've got all this great new science that I am really looking forward to. To telling you about. I've been doing a lot of research, and so I got all this really good stuff that we're going to be talking about. But we can't get to any of that stuff because we got to deal with the elephant in the room today. And that elephant is something that you all actually know about quite well, whether you realize it or not, which is that religion and science are often seen as adversaries to one another. Now, I don't necessarily expect that people in here feel that way. I would assume that probably most of you in here feel that science and religion, that they actually complement each other quite well. But what you have to realize is is that for the vast majority of Christians around the world and for the vast majority of the non-religious, they do not see it that way. In fact, they see them as diametrically opposed to one another. And they have good reason for believing this. So there are certain Christians who, when they look at something like Genesis 1, 1 to 27, they read it very literally. And because they read it so literally, they end up in a situation where they back themselves into a corner. So they look at the Bible, and in that Bible, they consider what is in there to be factual history. So What happens on page one and what happens at the end, that is a factual history of our planet. And because they read it that way, whenever they hear any type of evidence that contradicts what it says in there, they are in this situation where they have to either reject it as being totally and completely false, or they have to say, well, the Bible was wrong about that. And usually they're going to say, what? That it's false, right? Well... If you look at the Bible and you read it literally, what, how long did it take for the earth to be created according to Genesis chapter 1? 
Six days, right? Six days. That's how long it took. Now, if you do the math forward on that one, you start with the six days and you start adding, the amount of time that the earth has existed, according to the Bible, is 6,000 years. Now, for the vast majority of the existence of the Bible, that actually is what most people thought, is that the earth was about 6,000 years old. But in the last 150 years, that has been called into question because of the science of geology. Now, in the 1950s, geologists, they went out to this place in Arizona, and it is called the Canyon Diablo Crater. That thing right there, that's a skyward shot of it. And about 50,000 years ago, an iron meteorite crashed into the Earth. Now, if you believe the Earth is 6,000 years old, then there is no 50,000 years ago. But for the sake of argument, let's say 50,000 years ago, an iron meteorite crashed into the Earth. So what they did was they took fragments from this meteorite and they started examining them. And what they wanted to look at is the decaying radioactive elements in those fragments. This is known as radiocarbon dating. And what they came back with is that they determined that the age of that iron meteorite is about four and a half billion years old. Now, since that meteorite comes from the asteroid belt in our solar system and was created around the same time as the Earth, meaning that those, that rock and our Earth are contemporaries, they came to the conclusion that the Earth is around four and a half billion years old. But four and a half billion years is a little bit more than a rounding error when you're talking about the biblical age of 6,000 years old, right? And that discrepancy becomes even greater when you know that scientists believe that the universe is around 13.8 billion years old. So there's not a lot of compromise in between it. One's right, one's wrong, right? And it's a very black and white issue that has caused a great deal of consternation on both sides of this argument. Because each side has dug in their heels and the war has gotten pretty vicious in the last few years because each side is reacting from a place of fear. So for the religious, their fear is that one day science will reveal all the mysteries of the universe and that people will no longer need God and religion preventing people from finding salvation. That is the fear of the religious. But on the flip side of it, you have the non-religious, primarily atheists, who will sit there and say that religion is bad for the world. And they have good reasons for believing that. Because all you need to do is look at the Middle East to see how religion can cause human beings to act in some pretty bad ways, right? So each side, their argument is the same. Each side says, if you just saw things my way, everything would be okay right? That's how, they, that's how they feel. But you all know that it doesn't have to be like that, right? You don't have to choose one over the other. These two things can actually coexist together. I know that's hard to believe, but they can coexist. And indeed, I believe that both of these disciplines actually are stronger when held in tandem with each other than when they are only on their own. But in order for them to work, each side has to be willing to give a little bit. So on the Christian side, 
we have to let go of a literalistic reading of the Bible. And we have to be willing to admit that the Bible was not written as a scientific treaty on the creation of the universe. Because if you notice, like if you watch that and you were paying careful attention, what that is saying is that the earth is at the center of the universe because the earth is the first thing that is created and then everything else is created around it. Now, that was the thinking for a long time until this guy came along, his name was Nicholas Copernicus, you might have heard of him before, and he said that actually, no, the earth rotates around the sun. And that was a theory at the time. We now know that that is true. And what's interesting about this is he released this idea right before he died, even though he had come up with it decades earlier. Now, why did he do that? Because he knew this was going to be a problem for the church because it contradicted Genesis. And that he was going to have to deal with the fact that they were going to call a man and they were going to go through a trial, they probably would persecute him, and more than likely, they would execute him, as they would do to Galileo a hundred years later. But thanks to Copernicus, Galileo, and many other scientists who risked their lives in face of persecution from the church, we now know that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate in that way. What science does for us, and it's a beautiful thing, is it tells us one thing. It answers one question and one question alone. How? How does something work? So when you get sick, science will tell you, how does a virus infect its hosts? If you go and see those dinosaur skeletons at the museum, science will tell you, how did the dinosaurs become extinct? If you look up at the sun and you wonder, wow, that's been burning for a long time, science will tell you, why or how does the, bur does the sun burn for so long? Now, those questions, they often start off as a why question. Why does this happen? But the mechanism of science is to tell you how something works in terms of geology, biology, astronomy, and physics. And so with the rest of our time here today, what I want to do is I want to answer one question. And it's a question that I want to look at through the lens of science. And the question is quite simple. Why are human beings on this planet? Why are we here? Now, we've already heard the biblical explanation, which is what? What's the biblical explanation? God just made us, right? We're here. Bloop. Done. All right. Over. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this from the perspective of science. How did we get here, right? Or why did we get here? But we're going to look at it at how. So in order to do this, we've got to go back and we've got to answer the question, how did our solar system form? Because that's going to tell us what makes the Earth so special. So what that means is we've got to go back four and a half billion years. So four and a half billion years ago, our sun began to form. Now our sun is what's known as a yellow dwarf star, which compared to many stars in our universe is teeny tiny. It's very small. And it's not even really all that hot. But that's a good thing for us. Because here's the thing, our sun has enough fuel to burn for about 10 billion years. So you don't have to worry about it going out anytime soon, is really <laughs> what it comes down to. 10 billion years. So if our sun was 10 times larger with the same amount of fuel, it would burn out in 10 
million years. Now, why is that important? It's important because in order for life to get going in our universe, we need one important element, time, and a lot of it. And we're going to get more into that in a little bit. You need a lot of time. So, our sun, this yellow dwarf star, it starts forming, right? And there's all this stuff swirling around it, all this rock. And that rock starts to clump together into these larger formations that become the planets that circle around the sun, right? Now, our planet happens to be in just the right location. If we were 5% closer to the sun or 15% further away, we would not exist. And for evidence of this, all you need to do is look at Venus and Mars. So Venus is 25 million miles closer to the sun, and the average temperature on Venus is about 900 degrees Fahrenheit, which is hot enough to melt lead. Whereas Mars is 140 million miles further out than we are, and it's far too cold to sustain life. So we are in what they call the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold. We're right in the middle. Now the next thing that makes our Earth great for life is that we have a molten core of magma on the interior of our Earth. Now you might not think that that matters, but it makes a huge difference to who we are and why we are here. So every planet, when it forms, it has this molten interior to it, right? But here's the thing. Usually that molten interior only lasts and stays hot for about a few billion years, and then it cools off. Ours has kept hot and churning for a long time, which has been very beneficial to us. And the reason why is that for the first two billion years of our Earth's existence, this place was desolate. It was just an iceberg. There was nothing here. But what happened was that magma started to work its way to the surface and spew carbon out, which eventually created our atmosphere, which is why we can breathe, and it's why we're here. So that's the first thing that happened. The second thing you need to know about that molten interior is that it produces a magnetic field around our planet. Now, you may think, well, what difference does that make? It makes a huge difference, because what it does is it shields us from all of that solar radiation that's coming from the sun. Without it, if you want an example of what we would be without it, and it went away, you just have to look at Mars. So at one point, Mars had a magnetic field around it. And it actually had a pretty thriving atmosphere. We know this because you can see all those channels where there were rivers and different things like that on Mars. But at one point, that molten interior cooled off, and the magnetic field went away. And so the sun, all that solar radiation, decimated Mars's atmosphere. And now it's a barren wasteland. So if it goes away here, we're gone, guys, unfortunately. I just want you to know that that's a big part of why we're still here. The final thing that that molten interior does is that we have these tectonic plates that float on the magma. Now, for us, it causes all kinds of issues because what does that cause for us? Earthquakes, which aren't much fun, right? Like, they destroy all of our stuff. But it's a big deal that these things are floating there because what it means is, is that there's high points and there's low points in the Earth. And if that wasn't the case, then the Earth, by the way, there are some planets that are like this, would be almost perfectly spherical, which means that the ocean would be four kilometers deep all the way around. 
There would not be land. So if we existed, we would be amphibious, which might be kind of fun, frankly, if we were. So we'd all be able to beat Michael Phelps in a race. That's the truth. So the fact that there's high points and low points, that's a big deal. So we're on land. And there's the final factor, which had to fall into place for us to be here, is that we have a moon. Now, almost all the planets in our solar system have moons. But if you look at them, most of them are very, very tiny, those moons. Our moon is a quarter the diameter of the Earth. It's huge in comparison with the planet. And how it formed is about four and a half billion years ago, around the time that our planet was forming, an object the size of Mars smashed into our planet around the Pacific Ocean, which is why that big crater is there. And it shot all of this matter out into space, which then collected in the gravitational pull of the Earth and formed our moon. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because the moon is a steadying influence on the Earth. It causes us to spin at a very good speed, and we tilt back and forth like this. If the moon didn't exist, this is what would happen. We'd be doing this all the time, like a top that's about to turn over, and we would not exist. Life could not exist in that way. Minus any of those factors, any of those factors, we would not be here. And then you have the fact that when the world warmed up about two billion years in, it took two and a half billion years to get from those basic amino acids that, caused, that were caused by lightning striking the ocean to get eventually to us. But we wouldn't even be here if there hadn't been a few little things like extinctions, like asteroids plowing into the planet. Because if asteroids hadn't come in and hit at very specific times, every 25 million years or so, then guess what? There'd still be dinosaurs on the planet right now. 65 million years ago, asteroid comes in, knocks them, wipes the slate clean. You have to have the slate wiped clean every so often because the evolutionary pressure wouldn't be right for us to be here. In all, if you do the math on this, the odds of you actually existing are 1 in 10 to the 2 million 685th thousandth power. That's a lot of zeros. A lot of zeros. In other words, the chances of you existing are very, very low. And yet, you are here. And this is where religion can be of great use to people who put all of their faith into science. You see, science can tell us a lot about how we got here and why we are here. But the truth is, science can't tell us why we are here. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? Like, why do we exist? Why is any of this here? As much as science can tell us all of the factors that had to fall into place so that we could get here, Science cannot answer all the questions of life. And one of the most important questions that it cannot answer is that 13.8 billion years ago, something started all of this off. Something did. It couldn't just come from nowhere. And it caused all of this that we see around us to happen. Now, atheists, the non-religious, they are in a quandary because they can explain almost everything else in between, but they can't explain that. And of course, many of them say, oh, it's okay, you can go ahead and believe in God. 
and that can be your gap filler until we figure it out. But to me, I don't see it that way. I think that ultimately that is a question that we will probably never answer. And indeed, to me, it makes fundamental sense to say that God is the beginning or the creator of everything. And let me explain to you why I believe that to be true. When you look at human beings, at all of us, all over the planet, I mean, how many? There's seven and a half billion of us. You look at us, and all of us seem to have, most of us anyway, seem to have this spiritual nature. Now, I don't know what else you want to call it, but there's something spiritual about us. We're not just physical. There's something else there that people can identify. We call it God, right? But other people would call it other things. That's there. And so when I look at Genesis, I think Genesis got everything wrong scientifically about how we're here, but I think it got two things right. The first thing it got right is that God is at the beginning of everything. And the second thing it got right is that I think it is true to say that we are made in God's image. I do not believe that we look like God. Like, that's not what it means to me. What it means to me is that we have some of that spiritual nature. We have a spirit, a soul, a spark of the divine. That's inside of us. So even though science can tell us all the ways that we got here, all the factors that had to fall into place, it doesn't negate the fact that almost every single person on this planet feels a connection to something bigger than themselves. And so for me, what I see it as is that force that created us 13.8 billion years ago is the same force that makes me feel that spiritual nature inside of me. Those two things are connected to one another, and I'm more than happy to allow science to fill in the rest. And that's where I stand on things. But you know, that's not good enough for a lot of Christians. They don't like that very much. And so I've been thinking about this question a lot, because it's a big question, isn't it? Why is it that some Christians, they just reject this straight out? Like they're not willing to hold on to the science. They want, they're like, no, I'm going to read Genesis literally. And I think I figured out why this is, why some people really have to have this. When you look at the Bible literally, when you read it literally, it gives you purpose and meaning. Whereas when you look at it from the side of science, all of that purpose all of the meaning behind it kind of gets stripped away. Because one thing you probably noticed from that Genesis text is that humans are kind of like the coup de grace. We're, we're the finishing touches on God's master painting, right? I mean, we're really special if you read Genesis. But if you do it from the point of view of science, we're just here as a product of random chance. I mean, we're here, but we could just as easily not be here. And so I think why some people really cling to this notion that the earth is 6,000 years old is because they want to believe that humans are at the center of God's plan for existence. That we are it when it comes down to it. And that's a wonderful thing because it does give you purpose and meaning. Whereas when it comes to science, right, we barely even register as a blip in the history of the universe if we're 13.8 billion years old. I mean... We're barely even here. And so what both of these stories, the science story and the religious story, tell us and cause us to ask a question is, does the world, does the universe revolve around us 
or do we revolve around the universe? And to me, the answer to that question is, we revolve around the universe. And do you know why I believe that? I don't just believe it because it's scientifically accurate. I believe it because that's at the core of the gospel message. Jesus preaches to us, and he says that life is not about you. It's about God. And so every time I look at that scientific reality of how we got here, I'm reminded of that message. It's not about me. When I look at the scope and the size of the universe, it is hard for me not to feel this big and this insignificant. But you know what prevents me from being crushed under the weight of all that smallness and that insignificance? Is my faith. Because when I look at how huge the universe is, I'm reminded of how enormous God is and how blessed I am to be able to experience any of it. I mean, the odds are so stacked against us being here, and yet we have the opportunity to do this thing called life. How amazing is that? And so even though the universe doesn't even barely acknowledge our existence, the fact is that we believe in a God who started all of it and that we are here and we can do something positive with our lives. And so what I want to leave you with today is this. You have an opportunity here on this planet to live one life and one life only. So make that life count. That is why we come here every week and you hear me say those words, choose love, love somebody else out there in the world. Be the light. Be a light to someone who needs it and change this world because by God, you have one shot at existence and we have to make our lives count. And I want to make sure that that happens for every single person in this congregation. And to that, I will say, amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.